0: Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Why would you ask a question you already know the answer to? Why would you even do that, right? But do you realize that we do that all the time? We do that all the time. We ask questions that we know the answer to. Now we call them rhetorical questions. But you turn to your kids and go, what did I tell you to do? We don't need an answer. We're the ones that told them what to do. We know what the answer is. They know what the answer is. Do they actually have to tell you what they're supposed to do? No, what do we hope that question will will result in? Go do what they were supposed to do in the first place, right? But sometimes we do that. We ask questions that we, we know the answers to. At other times, we ask those questions in order to see if the person we're asking actually knows the answer. A good example of that is when you ask your kids to do something and they're watching TV... And you say, what did I tell you? Because you know they weren't listening. And they actually don't know the answer. And so there are several reasons why we would do that. In the scripture that we have this morning, we get the story of this lawyer that comes to Jesus, and the scripture tells us that he came to test him. He came to see if Jesus knew the answer to this question. But the interesting thing about the question is, This is the equivalent of a softball pitch because every single Jew that grew up learning about the Old Testament law, every single Jew that had grown up knowing about what to do to be righteous before God had heard what you were supposed to do in order to live right before God. They knew this. They knew it to the point that they had memorized a lot of the law. They had memorized it, and they could tell it back to you word by word. They could tell you where it was, what book it was in. That's Deuteronomy 6, by the way, that he quotes. But you see, they knew this in in their minds, and they understood the words. And so the lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he couldn't help but sound like a lawyer. No offense to the lawyer in the house. We know we got one here. We had one at the nine o'clock. I had to be careful what I said about lawyers. But you see, lawyers have this way of talking that's very lawyery. Have you noticed that? When they talk, it's always in legal terms. And this lawyer sounds exactly like a lawyer. He's using legal terms. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? The question sounds like a, law question because he's almost asking like, what do I have to do to fulfill the contract so that God will grant me the benefits of eternal life? It sounds like a transaction, doesn't it? What must I do or give in order to receive eternal life? And he posed the question to Jesus who no doubt knew his scripture. And it would have been so easy For Jesus just to quote scripture and say, this is what it says. But instead, Jesus did something better. He cross-examined the lawyer. He turned to the lawyer, and rather than answering the question, he turned to the lawyer and said, well, what does the law say? What do you read there? Now, the reason you have to ask it that way is because lawyers all read the law differently. You can have 10 lawyers in a room and they'll all read the same law and come up to different conclusions because they'd read it differently. And he says, what do you read there? You, you know, the law and the Lord, you know, there, there's this thing about when you know the answer to something and somebody asks the question, you, you almost interrupt total strangers to give the answer. Have you noticed that? Somebody's talking over there and they ask a question. You know the answer. And you're like, me, me, call me. I know the answer. The lawyer could not help it. When Jesus said, what do you read there? He's like, hey, that's my stuff. That's my field. I can do this. And so he turned to Jesus and he says, well, I know this one. The answer is you should love your Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And the minute the lawyer said this, and it came out of his mouth, he realized Jesus had just gotten him to answer his own question. And he must have been pretty upset about it, because he came to test Jesus, and who tested who? Jesus tested him. Jesus asked him the question and made him answer it. And Jesus said, you got it right. You know, we love it when somebody tells us we're right. We love to be right. Nobody likes to be wrong. The lawyer's like, this is the answer. And Jesus said, you are right. You're good. You're good. If you do this, you will live. You have the right answer. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus tells this to the lawyer, he doesn't tell him. You've got the right answer. Do this and you will inherit eternal life. He says, do this and you will live. There's a cue there into this passage because I think the lawyer was looking for a checklist of things to do, things that he could perform, tasks that he could accomplish so that he could go to heaven so that he could get eternal life. And Jesus doesn't give him a list of things. Instead, he says, do what the the law tells you, and you will live. And he leaves it at that. Well, you know, lawyers don't like to lose. If they like to lose, they wouldn't be lawyers. Because lawyers make their living in what? Winning cases, right? Who wants the lawyer that has lost every case they've ever had? Anybody? No. We want the lawyer that wins all the cases. That's always right. That always gets a good, right? And so this lawyer, not to be outdone, did not want to leave after getting duped into answering his own question, and wanting to justify himself, turns to Jesus and says, "Well, and, and who, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor?" She said, "Do this and I'll live." Who's, who's my neighbor?" And just like the first question, I believe that this lawyer had in mind already an answer for who the neighbor was. Just like the first question, I think he had an idea of who the neighbor is before he even asked this question of Jesus. And Jesus, instead of giving him the answer, which would have been easy, right? Your neighbor, everyone. Boom, done, finished. Now Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And he goes into the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan that everybody here has heard a million times. Everybody heard that story? Good Samaritan, anybody not heard the Good Samaritan story? Now everybody's heard it, right? We've all heard it before. Three guys going down the road, After one man gets beaten and robbed and left for half dead, first one, a priest, looks at him, goes the other way. Second one, a Levite, looks at him, goes the other way. Third one, a Samaritan. And Luke is careful to point that out. He's a foreigner. He's not one of us. He's not one of the Jews. A Samaritan sees the same man that the others had seen. I want you to see that it's not a different setting, it's not different situations, it's the same situation, the same man every other man that walked by had seen, sees that man and decides to do things differently than the first two, because they all saw him, right? Scripture says they walked on the other side. You don't walk to the other side unless you saw somebody on the other side that you want to stay to, stay away from. So they saw him. All three saw him. But the Samaritan saw him and did something different. He got near him. And when he saw his condition, the scripture tells us he was filled with pity. And this is not the kind of pity where you go, oh, poor you. It's not vain pity of, I am so sorry for you. I'll pray for you that God helps you. It was the kind of pity that moves us into action. Because the scripture says that he saw that he was wounded, and he took out wine and poured it over his wounds, and took out oil and began to bandage his wounds. Whose oil and whose wine? His oil and his wine. And he began to bandage this man who was beaten and left for half dead. But as if that wasn't enough, he took the man and put him on his animal. And when he put him on his animal, you know what that meant for him? He had to walk. He had to lead that animal with the man on top of it. And he took the man to an inn. And when he got to the inn, he didn't just leave him. He worked on him to heal him. Because if you read the scripture carefully, he didn't leave until the next day. He spent that night with that man who was wounded, cleaning his wounds, taking care of him, helping him to heal and then when morning came, he didn't just abandon the man. Scripture says that he gave two denarii to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I return, if, he spent, if, if there's any more expense, I'll cover it. Out of what? Out of his own resources. Now, when people read this story, There's so many things to see in it and learn from it, aren't there? Theologians read it theologically and say, you know, the Samaritan story is really the story of Jesus. Because Jesus, unlike others, does not pass us by. He stops and he comes to our aid when we are beaten and broken. And he comes to us when we need healing and restoration And he comes to us when we have a debt we cannot pay on our own. A debt to sin. And he comes and he pays that debt. See, at this point, Jesus was already going towards Jerusalem to die for our sins. The Gospel of Luke tells us he had already set his sights on Jerusalem and began his journey towards the cross. Jesus had already committed to stop for us. And think about it. He stopped his time and glory to take on human flesh. To come and dwell among us. To show us salvation and grace and to die for our sins. And give us the promise of eternal life. How many of us would have been in glory and gone here? Let me stop for those ungrateful people down there that keep doing evil things. Most of us would have been like, nope, not me. I'm going to continue up here in glory. But not Jesus Christ. He stops and he enters our history and he takes on flesh for you and me. This Christological reading is so appropriate because when you think about it, everything the Samaritan did is what Jesus does. He notices us wherever we are, in whatever situation, in whatever condition, in whatever need we are, Jesus notices us. I want you to know that Jesus does not pass you by. Now, we pass Jesus by all the time. We pretend like we don't hear him sometimes. And we pretend like we don't see what he's calling us to. But Jesus never passes us by. He's always the one that stops and heals the brokenhearted. And he's always the one that provides for the ones that are in need. The Samaritan paid for the man's care. He did everything out of his own resources. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave his own blood. He didn't give somebody else's. He gave his own life. He didn't give somebody else's. And he gave himself in a way that was free to us, but costly to him. Whenever I think about this parable, it always challenges me. And the reason it challenges me is because we always have people in our lives that we pass by. We all can name people or signal out people that we pass by every day. And we don't stop to see what what's going on with them, why are they hurting, or what do they need. And even if we did, we'd be reluctant to Put him in our car we'd be reluctant to take them to an inn. we'd be reluctant to give too much of ourselves so this scripture to me challenges me so much after telling the story jesus turned to that lawyer that had come to test him he turned to him and he said you've heard the story now tell me something Which one of these three men was a neighbor to the man who was hurt? Which one was the neighbor to the man who was hurt? And the lawyer must have thought about this. He'd heard the story. He knew the details. He would have loved to say... One of the Jewish guys was the hero of the story because he was Jewish. He would have loved to say the priest did the right thing. He stopped, but he didn't. He would have loved to point out that the Levite did, but he didn't. But the lawyer could not bring himself to say the Samaritan was the man who 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 did it right? If you look at the scripture, he says, the one who showed him mercy, that was the one that was his neighbor. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring himself to say the foreigner. He couldn't even bring himself to say that guy that we don't like because he's not like us or he's not of our country or our faith. That guy, that's the one that showed him mercy. That final moment of clarity for that lawyer must have been really daunting. He had come expecting Jesus to pat him on the back and say, you're so good at keeping the law. Keep it going, you know, do good. And instead, Jesus challenged him to put rules and laws to the side to care for people that are hurting. Jesus said to this lawyer, after he answered you know what you're right he's the one that showed mercy go and do likewise now for a jew there's nothing more insulting than telling a jew go and do like a gentile that was insulting but jesus literally said go And do likewise, like that Samaritan. Go and do like him. And in what ways are we supposed to be like the good Samaritan? The three basic things that he did. See others. Be moved with pity because of their pain and their suffering. And help them be saved. Help them be saved. You know, the scripture says that we are to mend the brokenhearted. To be with those who are suffering or ill. To continue to visit the sick, the poor, and the needy. To be a neighbor. Not as a way of patting ourselves in the back and going, look how good a neighbor I am but as a way of living our lives in ways that show the mercy of God that was shown to us in Jesus Christ when he went to that cross. He didn't have to do that. He did it out of love for us because he saw that we were beaten and we were broken by our sin. And he wanted to redeem us from that. We all need to learn to be good neighbors. Go and do likewise. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the challenges that it poses to our lives, to our busy schedules, to our need to accumulate more for ourselves, to our need, oh Lord, to just keep going and bypass those on the road. We ask you, O Lord, on this day that you will help us to commit to seeing the stranger, the foreigner, the needy, and the poor, to see those, O Lord, who are beaten and broken by society or by their own situations in life, and to have mercy and to have pity on them, but not just cheap pity, but pity that moves us to do and to care and to show help and support. We ask you, O Lord, that you'll help us to be those that go out to the brokenhearted and to the needy, and to do it in your name for your glory, that they might be saved and have life. We asked these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now you might be the one that's beaten on the side of the road, and I know that you would want somebody to stop, or you might be the one that needs to stop. Because you see somebody beaten on the side of the road. Wherever you see yourself in this story. I invite you to come to the altar and pray about it. And ask God to help you to find a way. To do likewise. Even when it's hard. Even when it's challenging. The altar is open as we continue worship.